This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Dominic Lewis is a British film and television composer. He first worked on various film projects as an assistant before transitioning into solo works such as Three Birds, The Man in the High Castle, DuckTales, Peter Rabbit, Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, Monsters at Work, and has recently scored The Kingsman, released in Christmas 2021, which he co-composed with Matthew Margison. In August 2021, for Talking Soundtracks, I had the pleasure of talking to Dominic via Zoom at his home in Los Angeles. During the interview, amongst other things, we talked about his musical heritage, how he started on film scoring as an assistant, how he was hired for his first solo assignment with Freebirds, and how his career has progressed since then, scoring more higher profile projects such as the Peter Rabbit films. And during the show, you'll be hearing samples of the music of Dominic Lewis, showcasing how he is becoming one of the true upcoming composers in the film music industry. Dominic Lewis, welcome to Talking Soundtracks. How did your interest in music start? I didn't really have much of a choice. Um, my, both my parents are musicians. My dad's a cellist and my mum's a singer. My dad was in a string quartet called the Medici String Quartet. So the house was always filled with music. My mum was a singing teacher, so she had pupils all the time. I've got an older sister as well who was sort of, she'd kept the kind of cool stuff going. So my, all the classical music and the Beatles and the Beach Boys, not that they're not cool. So that was my parents' taste in music and that was always on the hi-fi in the house and then my sister would kind of like she was listening to kind of oasis and blur and happy hardcore and jungle and hip-hop and stuff as i grew up so yeah i mean as i said i didn't really have a choice i was surrounded by it from a very early age what was your music education well other than my parents my dad actually put me in music lessons called suzuki the suzuki method is very much kind of focusing on your ear and learning music by your ear which I'm very thankful for now being a composer. My sight reading did suffer a little bit as a kid, but I started cello when I was three, not with my dad. My dad didn't want to get involved early and wanted me to kind of learn Suzuki method first. And then as I got older, my dad took over as my teacher. But I was always doing music in school. I was a boy chorister, like seven, I think I started singing in choirs. And then I went to boarding school 
where I was head chorister in, at my boarding school, Cranley School, as a music scholar. I got a music scholarship to Cranley School. When I moved to the senior school, I met Rupert Gregson Williams' stepdaughter. So then I was put in touch with Rupert. So there was all that going on and being a music scholar and constantly in orchestra and doing music GCSE, music A-level. And after A-levels, I thought I wanted to go study music at university. So I got into Nottingham. And I thought I'd be writing music, but actually I was writing about music. So I got into my first seminar and the first project was to write about how religion had affected 16th century counterpoint. I was like, whoa, this is not what I expected. This is definitely not for me. So I called my dad and I was like, dad, I think I've made a mistake. I think this is the wrong thing. I'm in the wrong place. And my parents were so cool. They were like, whatever it's going to make you happy, we'll find the route for you. You obviously want to be a musician. We'll find what's best. So I took a year out. I worked in diesel as a denim specialist. And whilst doing that, I was I was getting my portfolio ready to apply to the Royal Academy of Music for the composition course. My next door neighbor at the time, Paul Pritchard, was a TV composer and commercial composer. So he kind of helped me out because back then, I mean, I didn't really know that much about orchestration. It was all by ear. So I applied for the Royal Academy. Luckily, they saw something in my work. They let me in. And then I had four years of, of composition. And the funny thing was, is I actually applied for the media and TV composition course. And on my first day at the Academy, they told us that the course didn't exist anymore. So we got put in, it was myself and another guy, Chris Brown, the media composers got put in with the classical contemporary composers for two years, which was at the time, like, oh, my God, I don't want to do this. It's another mistake. But I'm so glad I did it because it really prepared me for all the different kinds of genres you need to be a film composer. So it all worked out great in the end. Have you always had an interest in film and TV music before you wanted to go in, into it as a career? So my dad was in the quartet and then he started playing on film scores and, and TV and pop sessions and stuff. So I'd always been into John Williams and Alison Vestry and, and always noticed film music. But the goal as a kid was to be a singer-songwriter or a pop star, rock star, which didn't work out. So, you know, when I kind of woke up and realised that's not realistic, I was getting into film music and really loving it. And then I met Sadie and Rupert and it was just kind of a really nice snowball effect. And so, yeah, I mean, it, that wasn't the original goal, but sort of, I'd say 15, I was like, yeah, this, I, I have to do this. Were, were you a soundtrack corrector in your younger days? It gets some Goldsmith, John Williams schools, Goldsmith and Sylvester. Uh, yeah, to a point, yeah, to a point. I remember once I got the bug, Gladiator was a big one for me, which was so odd with my career trajectory to then a few years later be sitting in a room with hands. But yeah, Gladiator got me through my GCSEs. I'd revised to Gladiator a lot. And kind of best ofs, actually. I, my, my parents would get me kind of best ofs of commercial music, TV music, film music. I had a really great best of with, there was like The Mummy Returns was on there, a lot of John Williams, Danny Elfman and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, it was, it was kind of a gradual thing. But once I got to 15, 16, I did work experience. And knowing Rupert, Harry was coming over for Shrek. And Rupert said, oh, do you want to go to Harry's session? Um, I was like, yeah, I'd love to, and sat in on Shrek. At that point, it was it. That was like, oh, okay, I really have to do this. So my dad was on the session, and, and my dad's friends, of course, all, all of them, which I knew. So that I think that was the point where I was like, okay, that this is for me for sure, definitely. It's a good thing you knew people in the industry as well. It's a very, that's a very good thing to have. That sort of yeah, thing. I've been very lucky. I've been yeah. very lucky with that. It's not 
you know the people you know and you know where you are and who you are as well and you know it's people you know people in the industry it, it, really, it gives you a good advantage to get into it doesn't in a way definitely it opens yeah. the door i've always said mm. like when people ask advice and you know how i did it it's always like, i've been lucky because i've had people to open the door but i think it's really important that you're able to walk through the door and not have it <laughs> slammed in your face now how how did you get your first assignment well i did little bits and bobs for rupert Whilst I was at the academy, we kept in touch. He'd get me to do some vocal arrangements on things and sing on stuff. And all the time I was kind of, you know, I've written this piece for my portfolio where you look at it and stuff like that. So the goal was to kind of finish the academy and then go work for Rupert. But his roster was kind of full. He had already had his additional and didn't have kind of enough work at that point to, to, to take me on. So he was like, well, listen, get yourself on a plane go meet hands i'll put in a good word and just kind of see what happens out in la because that was always the goal previous to that i'd gone out to visit rue in in la and wanted to go and help out on b movie but i wasn't quite ready and i got appendicitis so that kind of went a bit wrong but yeah so eventually i finished academy flew out to la meant to meet hands it didn't happen for a while I sort of had a very brief meeting with him and I was just kind of in Rupert's studio writing library music and then my friends from the session world my dad's friends were coming over to to stay with John Powell and have a little holiday out in LA and Emlyn called me up one of John's friends and said oh well you know I'm at John's come and hang out be lovely to see you come and have dinner come and play tennis whatever so I went over there and kind of just like hung out for four days <laughs> was like, I had dinner some tennis swimming just sort of hanging out all the time and then at the end of that Emily had sort of been whispering in John's ear that I was worth giving a shot and all of that stuff and John said to me yeah well I'm doing this movie Thanksgiving's coming up and all my staff are Americans so they'll be celebrating Thanksgiving but I really need to kind of keep the, the foot on the pedal and, and keep going with this movie so come and do a trial so I did. I turned up, gave me like a little sort of teaser cue to, to start with. And I sort of just, I didn't disappoint. And I carried on and I finished the movie. And that movie was How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, wow. So that, so that was, yeah, that was like my first big Hollywood movie that I worked on was was Dragons. Um, and then everything from that point was kind of a snowball and just it got better and better. What a movie to start on! How to train? It's a, it's, I know it's one of the great scores of the two thousand. It was twenty first century, in my opinion. It, Super it, lucky to be, to be part have, of it. To yeah. have to play the release on my archive show when it came out, it had to be. It was such. I had to put it on there. It was so a wonderful, wonderful score. But all three are terrific. And John Powell mm. has just gone up in the stratosphere. His score for Solo, of course, as well. It, He's a genius. Every, He's an absolute genius. I, I love his work and I love him. He's awesome.
Now you you said you joined remote control. You've also you said also you done a lot of additional music assignments. I noticed a lot of animations like Kung Fu Panda and sort of Court of Turning Dragon. Do you think that those helped you develop your skills as a film composer? Um, definitely. I think it's a a very integral part of being a composer. I mean, I I wouldn't have done it any other way. I think it's very important that being an additional composer, you get to sort of do it without the pressure. If you know what I mean, it's like you can kind of you sort of working in the wings and you're writing stuff and you can get things wrong and you don't have to like take the phone calls and deal with producers and do all that stuff, which is such a huge part of being in the solo chair. So it's, it's a good warm up to the real thing. You still feel the pressure. You still feel the stress of getting things done and, you know, wanting to get it right and getting stuff approved. But I think at the time you want to be in the room and you want to be in the chair and you want to be part of it. But actually looking back on it if I could talk to myself I'd be like just enjoy this just enjoy the fact that you can turn up at nine o'clock in the morning right no one's calling you no one's asking you to do this you're not getting pulled in a million different directions and you can just sit there and write music I think now if someone told me I could do that that'd be great but you know I've got the whole the business side and everything to juggle and everything else and so I think doing the additional thing is really useful it's such a hard world to be in being an additional is great because it, it allows you not, not to get swallowed up and spat out immediately. So I really value my time as an additional. And I was so lucky to be able to be a sponge around some of the greatest to ever do it. We've mentioned John. I was additional for Hans, Henry Jackman, Ramin Javadi, all these people. I, you know, I just became a sponge and just tried to learn as much as I could before. Luckily, I eventually got my own gigs. What was the actual process you found to be an assistant composer what was like it how changes did... really it changes from composer to composer i mean on how to train your dragon with john it was very much kind of at the beginning it was like he'd map it out on the piano and kind of do most of the cue on the piano and then i'd go in and kind of orchestrate it out and then a few cues later on it was like okay well i want this to happen here i want that to happen there and use this theme use that theme you know some people just go here's the theme go right from here to here <laughs> and then working with Henry for the better part of five years sometimes it was like just go here's the theme or sometimes here isn't the theme and sometimes you know the stuff he was really into and really wanted to kind of control everything he'd come in and do a piano map and that piano map didn't always stay sometimes if you're doing a revision you just had to do the revision but yeah it depends it, it kind of depends on the project and who it was really so that another another thing of being kind of the different aspects of the additional composer was it's, it was always different with whoever i worked with oh which school you work with henry jackman oh loads big hero six wreck it ralph puss in boots man on a ledge x-men first class gulliver's travels this is the end of the interview so there's probably more that i'm forgetting but yeah pretty much everything from whatever years i was working for him for he was a king's chorister i think or some we have very similar career trajectories or career paths we were both kind of choristers we both went to private school in the uk studied music and so we've got that like orchestral background classical background but we're also into kind of the the modern stuff and the, the pop and the dance and the, all the different kind of genres yeah. That's why we fit well i think for those five years not many people work together for that long i think as an additional you kind of want to spread your wings and get out of there but yeah. we just seem to complement each other
done these additional music assignments done really well what happened when you actually got your first full composing assignment it was a movie called free birds and it was actually because of john powell john done the music for the director jimmy hayward's last few movies horton hears the who amazing score and some other ones i think robots and other things like that and jimmy approached john to do this next one and john was too busy had way too much on his plate and john gave him five names um if he thought you know this is who i think should do it and then apparently according to jimmy who i'm very close with now he sort of singled out my name and said you're going to get on with this guy way better than any of the others so i took the meeting and jimmy and i just hit it off we were talking about like old american cars and just kind of riffing and joking he's such a, an amazing character he's a hilarious guy so we really hit it off and yeah i think it was it was between me and michael danner and jimmy makes the joke that he had to kind of call the oscar winner and say you know what i'm gonna give this young guy a chance which was i mean amazing and the movie ended up doing not great so michael's probably thankful he didn't do it but i mean it was fantastic for me especially being so young and getting the opportunity to record at air with my dad and for the first time and it was just a wonderful wonderful experience so yeah and actually after that i did have to, i kind of had to go back to doing additional because as you get your first gig and it's comes out in cinemas and it's out all over the world and making millions of dollars and then you think okay well i'm done that's it i'm i'm set for life I, the, the movies are just going to come flowing in and they don't so i yeah i actually went back and did a couple of other things i think i did went back and did big hero six and kingsman the first one and then I started getting other things and Henry started throwing me crumbs and, and I sort of just sort of built it up from there, really.
Well, one thing I have listened to recently is uh, your score, you won your first award for, for Spooks. Oh, yeah. Greater Good. You won the World Soundtrack Award for Discovery of the Year. And I can understand why listening to it. Tell us a little bit about that score and how you came about scoring the film for the famous BBC series Spooks. Yeah, that was cool. I just, it was one of those ones that very rarely my agent had got me an interview because um, the thing is the common thing with agents is they sort of they get you in the room and then you've got to do the rest the rest of it but um or it's like most of the, my gigs have come from people handing them down like henry or john so yeah no my agent got me to interview with barat who we just hit it off and it's one of those ones that it was a zoom and i clicked off and i was like i think i might have got that gig and that goes either way sometimes you go i think i got that gig and you don't <laughs> But that one I did. Yeah, we hit it off. It was such an amazing experience because when I was an additional and free birds, things change all the time with the picture. So you're constantly having to deal with conforms and changing your music and figuring out how you're going to rework it to the different cuts. But with Spooks, it was done. I mean, there were a couple of tweaks, but I got delivered six reels of finished film, essentially. So I got just to write. I wanted to come at it very differently. I wanted to get a bunch of random audio together and just start messing with it and just start kind of playing with delays and playing with compression and and, and just kind of trying to figure out thematic material from mucking around with audio. So I gathered a bunch of stuff up from MI6, old and new, lots of tech stuff, lots of kind of bleeps and phones and all the kinds of things you associate with spies and things like that and then just started messing with audio I just came up with some really cool stuff kind of really tried to push the soundscape to a point where it could make some filmmakers uncomfortable you can always go oh well, no no that's just a suite I can pull that back I can make it you know more cinematic I can whatever it is but Barat loved it he was like this is great I mean I don't quite see where it goes yet when I played him the suite but this is awesome like carry on in this vein so I did and I just sort of went really kind of super electronic there's also some really nice emotional bits in there the budget was kind of small so the only kind of real instrument in there is my voice and me playing the cello and it was just a great second gig in I didn't have all the pressure I could just kind of write freely and Barrett was so understanding and it's just so awesome and kind of just said yes to everything I did. So I think oftentimes when you get that, there's two ways for me. You either have to really hard graft and like really get to the finish line. It's super difficult and you end up with a great score because it's you've just gone through so much pain that it comes out great at the end or that it's just super easy. So you get to just express what you're feeling at that point. And Spooks was that one. Spooks was just really easy. And I just got to, it was just an expression of where I was electronically at that point. So, yeah, it's, yeah, I often look back fondly to that movie and haven't really got a chance to work with Barrett again, um, but would love to. Did you, before you scored it, did you watch some of the episodes and see what the scoring was like on the series before you went on? You just, you just went off, did your own thing? I was obsessed with the show. I used to watch it all the time. Me and my mum, it was like me and my mum's thing. We would watch Spooks. I didn't want to go back and revisit the sound because I wanted to bring something new to it but with a lot of things i've done having been fans of the original version of it i've it's up in my head anyway really so it's so it was there but i didn't want to go back and really revisit it so i was you know subconsciously recreating or copying something so i knew it had to be electronic i knew it had to kind of push the envelope a little bit and that's kind of where i left it so yeah i absolutely adored the original show 
but musically didn't want to kind of go there. I wanted to do something a bit different.
thought on the great TV series for Amazon, The Man in the High Castle. I think you started off working with Henry Jackman and then you yeah. took over the composer range yourself. Tell us about your work on that series. Well, I got a call from Henry. I was up in Hans's kitchen. I was eating lunch. <laughs> and I picked up the phone. I was like, and Henry's like, I've got as you this. do. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I had a studio at remote control at the time. So, yeah, I, I picked up the phone and Henry was like, I've got this series. I can't do it. I think you'd be great as a co-composer. I'm going to see if they'll go for it. Are you up for it? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And it was like, Boom, and he was gone super quick. And fortunately, the guys at Amazon were like, yeah, that's fine. That's great. Sounds like a good plan. We did the pilot together. At the time, it was Amazon was doing kind of, they just do the pilot and then they would release the pilot and see what the interest was and see if it was worth making into a full series. And luckily, everyone loved the pilot, so it got made into a full series. So Henry and I did the pilot, and then I've kind of, from that point, kind of took over. You know, Henry would check in now and again. But it was really cool to do something a little different and it not to be electronic, to do something different with traditional instruments and use kind of the the Western orchestra, the normal instruments of the orchestra as the tent poles and kind of move this weird world around it. So, yeah, I mean, I, another one that was such a joy to do because david zucker at ridley scott productions you know we hit it off it was just a really great experience and and so and when you have such an amazing show and pictures and stuff to really inspire you and it makes my job a lot easier so it's one of those ones where i it's kind of the the project where i get the most compliments people go oh, i love your score for man in the high castle but and i am really proud of it it's sort of doing the orchestral thing but not so floral and kind of very serious and reserved so i had to be kind of i couldn't kind of pull out the orchestral chops with it i had to kind of really figure out how do i keep the seriousness but at the same time you know show off what instruments can do and, and stuff like that so yeah it was an amazing four series
now we'll talk about the Peter Rabbit series. Tell us about your working relationship with director Will Gluck and your music for the Peter Rabbit films. Well, I met Will. I got called in for an interview with Will. As I'm told, no one else was up for the gig. But, you know, I sort of got the background on Will and how he's at the time wasn't really that into film music and didn't really like using it and was more of a needle drop guy, more of a song guy. But obviously doing Peter Rabbit, you're not going to get away with just doing songs. You need some form of score to tell story and to accentuate the English countryside and whatnot. So the process was a cool one. So he wanted to kind of I guess it was sort of an, an audition or to ease me into the project. I'm not sure. But they gave me the, the kind of Beatrix Potter illustration scene very early on as a storyboard. And it was kind of like, this is the most, this is the most film scorey we want it to be, like very traditional. But at the same time, like we're open to being more song-like or whatever it was. So I, I, my first iteration of that, I sat down at the piano, came up with my theme, made sure it all worked. The first version that I did was actually the, the suite in the credits at the end of the film um, where I'm singing. And as much as everybody liked it, they were like, I think we really need to go more traditional with that, with, with this particular scene. So that was then on the soundtrack. I think it's the tale of Peter Rabbit, the most kind of pastoral, traditional thing on the, on the album. So that was all well and good. All that was sorted. The more traditional stuff, we were all great. But then when we were moving into the kind of rest of the sound of the score, that took a bit longer. So again, Will was very kind of leaning on. We wanted, needed to be more kind of song-like. It needs to be grounded in, in the elements of song. So I was really trying to figure out, okay, what are these elements? So I played a bunch of guitars and drums and organs and things and then brought in a very, like a, a quartet, a wind quartet to kind of dip his toe into the kind of classical scoring world of things. So it's still very close. It felt like a band. It sort of felt like an octet thing. It had been like a month already. I remember sending it to him. He was in New York, I think, at the time. I got just an email about, this is great. I think we're onto something here. Great. So I started moving forward with the rest of the score, doing it like that. But of course, you've got this big Hollywood movie. It can't just stay as eight musicians. It needs to get bigger. It needs to get bigger. So then we hit another roadblock. I was like, okay, how the hell do I crack this code? The beginning of the movie, you know, when he plows through the birds and he's like, sorry. And then Margaret was like, oh, we're not telling that story. This is a different story. I decided to tackle that scene. That scene had been a song for so long. It had been song two. It had been Iggy Pop. It had been so many different things. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, this is, this is how I crack the score. So I start with just the drum beat and because Will loves that really four on the floor kind of rocky dr drum beat. So I started with that, the dink, 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 dink thing. And then I was like, hey, how do I build around this? Got my guitars going, got my bass going, came up with, the, that was the point I came up with the bass line, the ding, 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 all that cool bass line. And then I just started building on top of it. Okay, so I had the band. I was like, this is great, but it's not big enough. We've got this big English countryside. He's running around. He's getting chased by a fox. He's going underneath the trees. He's doing all sorts of things. So I was like, right, let's just do it. So I just smacked like, I imagine, I was like, what would George Martin do with the quartet? And then I'll do it for the whole orchestra. And that's kind of how I won him over. I was like, I just, it's basically a 60s or English inspired band with a big orchestra on top of it. And we was like, yes, this is the sound. And obviously we have to get quieter and more kind of intimate and more emotional at points, but that's what kind of broke the ice. And then everything else got a lot easier from that point.
What size orchestra did you fondly use for the Peter Rabbit films? Oh, it's fairly big. I think it was sort of 80, 80 to 90 pieces. Yeah, it's big. Good. Out in it's Australia, we recorded. It's a big sound, really good sound. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was it's, so much fun. Got to go out to Sydney and record at Track Down. It was great. Was it a Australian symphony orchestra or was it a session players in Australia? So the session orchestra, there's a mixture of the two. It's the mixture of the Sydney Symphony and the Sydney Opera. So incredible players. First move, I did everything out there. I did harpsichord, horns, drums, bass, guitars, 
and then the second movie I took over the guitars and the bass side of things and then still recorded the orchestra out there.
very good sound. It's one of those scores which I really do enjoy. When after you listen to it, you feel tired because it's such a it's such <laughs> an energ energetic piece of music. It's so 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 much energy in it, and I, I love oh, those good. scores. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, that was the real tough bit. It's kind of how do you get the energy of of the rabbits running around and and the subtle use of the Mission Impossible theme as well in a couple of indication. Oh, I hope not. It's probably similar. No, I, I haven't. I didn't. I haven't plagiarized uh, Lalo Schifrin. No, I hope it's not too uh, too close. Oh, it's just terrific. I think I've had that. Has definitely that, has, has heist, that yeah. that The second heist. one's definitely got more heistiness yeah. to it. Yeah, for sure. I, now I've noticed on your credits that you. You do a lot of animation, and you've done recently. You worked on the Ducktales reboot, which I found interesting, and yeah. also the Rocketeer. How did how those come about, and how do you score those two uh, animated series? Well, Ducktales. I mean, I'd met with Mark and Jay, who were the execs over at Dis Music Disney TV, Disney TVA. Um, we had a great meeting, but I just kind of got too busy and everything they were offering was kind of, I can't really do that. And at the, at the time they were like, you can only do our projects when you're working with us. And I just, I couldn't do that. I was trying to cement myself as a solo composer and I needed to be juggling projects and, and getting my feet off the ground or whatever the phrase is. So it was like three or four years, maybe even longer before they came to my agent with DuckTales and I got a call saying, oh, Mark and Jay interested in you doing DuckTales. Do you have any interest in it? And I was a massive DuckTales fan as a kid, especially of the theme tune. And so I jumped at the chance and uh, went in for a meeting with the execs, Matt and Frank, who were just amazing and all the way through the process, just wonderful, brilliant people, talented people, and sort of got signed on to do it. And then the first thing they brought me in to kind of listen to the well, they brought me in to talk with me about the, doing the show and whatnot. And then they played me the new theme, the kind of refreshed theme tune. And it was all great, all, all going along nicely. And then it got to the, the bridge and they hadn't done the original chords. And I was like, whoa, 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 what happened? What happened? And they stopped it. I mean, what, what do you mean what happened? You can't not do the chords. It's a great turnaround in, like, in the bridge before you get to the chorus. You can't not do that. And they were like, you saw, I saw them like stroking beards. And they were like, well, how would you like to come on as like, you know, we'll change the chords and maybe you can do some cinematic strings and things or whatever it is. And so I came on as like producer role, I guess, adjacent to the main producer. And I was really pushing for the main Jerry Hay horn lines to get in there on horns. And they were kind of like, nah, it's too nostalgic. We can't go that far back into the 80s. We've got to think of something else. So they eventually ended up on strings. Um, which is cool, but I was desperate to get them on horns because it's one of my favorite bits of the main title. But so, yeah, that was my first experience on DuckTales. And then they just kind of wanted to have me bring what I bring to the show. Again, I didn't go back and look at what Ron had done. It was up in my head because I was a huge fan of the show, but I didn't go and revisit it because I didn't want to like it to sort of by osmosis get into the score. So, yeah, it was just this hybrid kind of big orchestral with synths and bands and, you know, going all over the the imaginary worlds i was able to use lots of different instruments and different genres and write 80s montages and just an amazing project to be a part of
Talking soundtracks will return shortly. APM Music offers limitless potential for your creative content. No matter the genre or mood, all the music you need is on one platform. And you don't have to worry about licensing. APM's got that covered. Need help finding the perfect track? APM's dedicated music directors can deliver curated options designed specifically for your creative vision. APM's website uses best-in-class search technology, so finding the perfect track is easier than ever. Find your sound at apmmusic.com. You're listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. It's Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury. These series, tough acts to follow with Doctor's Ron Jones, the great Ron Jones of Star Trek and Family Guy, and The Rocketeer, that magnificent score by James Horner. How did you go about scoring an animated series, The Rocketeer, following in the footsteps of James Horner? Uh, by doing something completely different. I've had to follow a couple of people, which is extremely daunting in my career. So luckily, this show had been switched up enough for me to do something different. I just sort of lent into what I gravitate towards and that's 80s star music so it's a lot of synth a lot of kind of nostalgia of the 80s so I wasn't really using much orchestra in it at all and when I did it would tend to just be like kind of big horn lines and things that were more reminiscent of the Horner score but not really so it was kind of very tronic but in an 80s way Hmm. um, just to keep it fun and just a little bit different and again you know everyone was keen on it so I'm developing a bit of a pattern. I think I was born in the wrong time and I should have been should have been a composer in the 80s. But Yes, my, my, <laughs> my old days. What would you have got the work? A lot of composers working in the 80s. There were some great people. Like, well, I certainly, yeah, I certainly wouldn't have got orchestral work in the 80s, that's for sure, yeah, with got, the likes of Alan Sylvester and John Williams around. I don't yeah. think I would have got a look in. But. Yeah, Bernstein as well, and everybody, all, all the good ones, Wilson's Hall, all the, all the great composers, they're lapping it up. It's, it'd be a darn yeah. good composer to get, get decent gigs in those days. I can say. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so maybe it is best that I'm now. <laughs> Following in their footsteps. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
kind of following your footsteps, uh, monsters at work, you had to follow the footsteps of the great Randy Newman. Yeah, I know. How was your hide for that assignment? I was actually in a meeting for Rocketeer. Jay had said to me, we were walking out, everything was great, whatever. Jay, weirdly, I was like, it's a bit of a strange question. We said, what are your jazz chops like? My answer was, well, you know, I mean, I love jazz. It's, I'm sort of like a, I don't know, like a Randy Newman level of jazz. <laughs> you know, I didn't know he was probing. But I think that kind of sealed the deal on them offering me the gig. And then they sent me D23 or Comic-Con teaser they were going to do. It was like a 90 second thing just to make sure I was the right person. Scored that. Everybody loved it. No notes, as we say in the biz. And um, yeah, just kind of went from there. And then the process was kind of cool, actually. Bob Scanaway, the showrunner of the first season, sent me the sheets of like what the characters looked like who they were, their background, what they were like, how they interacted with other monsters. He was like, okay, just let, let's get to grips with the characters. And then without picture, I just want to write themes for a month or two months. I want to get all the themes down for all the major characters before we even start looking at picture. It's like, cool, great. Just get to write sweets for a month, two months. And that's what I did. You know, just went through each character and, and the main kind of miffed theme was first. And then went through all the other characters. They went through some revisions. Actually, themes that I thought had been thrown out and they didn't like, they ended up using in when I related started when I started later to do the show. They put it in the temp. Sometimes the myths themes got like two or three iterations of it. Really awesome experience. And I tried not to think about too much about following in Randy's footsteps because it's just an impossible task. So again, just kind of like bringing what I bring to that world, having more of a foot in the nostalgia realm than usual with these projects being able to kind of put a, my stamp on the main title was great yeah it's more of a kind of a nod to randy but i definitely didn't want to just write like randy because what's the point so i get to do kind of more different genres more 80s stuff so yeah it was it's, it was so much fun
no, a good job there. Really, really good, really great work. Really Thank great you. Work. Yeah, it was tricky to, you know, what I couldn't record with an orchestra, so I had to kind of get solo players to record in their bedroom and send in audio files. So yeah, it was tough because jazz is definitely the hardest thing to program. So we got there in the end, but it was it was a really tricky experience trying to cobble together <laughs> recording and yeah. get it all mixed in. So it seems to work out quite well, quite quite well. How do you generally describe your musical style? Wow, that's a good question. Um, it's tough because I, I, I sort of, I'm all over the place. <laughs> I guess that's a good way of describing my musical style, all over the place. You know, one minute I'm doing kind of hip hop rock infused scores, and the next minute I'm doing very floral orchestral stuff. So I think it's very difficult to describe my musical style. I would say, in one word, probably eclectic would be a good way of describing my musical style. Do you see yourself as an all-out orchestral guy if you can, opposed to an electronic person, or do you like using both palettes? I like doing both. I mean, I adore writing for orchestra, and it's definitely what I would consider my strong point. I would much prefer it that way around, to kind of lead with the orchestra and then be able to do all the electronic stuff and the band stuff. But at the same time, I... I if I do too much of it, I go a bit nuts because there's a lot of work, especially having to demo up everything in a sequencer and really floral orchestra writing is is a ton of work. So it's good to kind of mix it up and have a different process and a different workflow on something that's more electronic or something that needs more production and songs and things like that. I think it, it keeps everything fresh. If I'm moving from one thing to another and switching genres, it sort of forces me to kind of mix things up a bit if i just do animation or i just do electronic it, one of the genres gets a bit tired and a bit boring so it's good to mix it all up it's a boot now on the other foot you have additional composers for your music yeah i uh, i have people helping out i have a great guy who was my tech assistant who sort of moved into to the additional realm called daniel future who is insanely talented amazing guy he's like my little brother so yeah uh, the shoes on the other foot, for sure. <laughs> You've probably learnt how to do that with you, working with Henry Jackman and Zimmer and that, I'm sure. You know yeah, I mean, I've taken the bits that I enjoyed from that whole process and I tried to make it as enjoyable for, for people working with me, whether it's a tech assistant or a additional composer or a business manager or whatever it might be. I tried to kind of learn from my experience and the things that I felt weren't great, I try not to do. And the things I felt were great, I tried to do more of. So... It's an interesting learning curve. How much does technology help you in your composing work? It's a double-edged sword, I think, technology. It definitely it helps speed the process up, but it's definitely opened doors to kind of more criticism, both negative and positive. I think because now we're in a world where we have to kind of mock up a demo or a cue to a point where it sort of is the thing. It sounds very much like it's going to sound in the end, we miss out on that wonderful process of it sort of being close. And then you turn up to the scoring stage and you're just blown away. I mean, it's always amazing going to a scoring stage and it definitely always heightens the score to a point. But I think back in the 80s, you know, when you're just kind of banging out the piano with your director behind you going, oh, this is going to be flutes and this is going to be this. And what do you think of that? And yeah, OK, cool. 
and then you've never heard it like you just don't know what your score is going to sound like and you turn up to the scoring stage and you're like whoa this is insane i think it's sad that we don't live in that world anymore but it's really cool to be able to mock up something it's difficult but you can get something to sound like john williams or you can get something to sound like strauss or whatever or ravel or wherever it might be in a computer it's kind of amazing when i'm writing on paper and when i was writing in a college you do tend to kind of be a little bit more creative in whether it's extended orchestral techniques or textures that you can't get with samples so either you have to kind of know that that's what you want put in a placeholder get on the phone to your orchestra and be like i've roughed up this thing but try it saltasto with this that and the other you know what i mean so i love being able to to have something i can play a director and it sounds almost like the thing but at the same time you do feel a little bit handcuffed with the textures of the samples that you've got and that's kind of what you have to use so i do find myself calling my orchestrator and going you know what would be really cool here is it'll sound kind of the same thing but it'll just have this shimmer on it that will just add something and i actually do a lot of that at the stage i'll take desks away and add different orchestral techniques just to kind of mix it up a little bit but it would be nice to kind of be there with paper and like doing it all and like i used to at college but it's just not realistic i remember talking to scott glasgow saying about using computers orchestration the difficulty that you have in computers is it's very difficult to do woodwinds did you find that at the beginning stages of sampling, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure when you talk to Scott, but now the samples are so great that there's only certain things in woodwinds that I feel I can't do. I feel like oboes are still a bit rubbish. Flutes are okay. I've got some decent flute samples. But yeah, oboes are a bit rubbish and trumpets are still a bit rubbish. You know, there's some of the things that a trumpet can do, it's really difficult to mock those up. I mean, you get, there's nice legato patches, but kind of that midway point for both the oboe and the trumpets, a bit like, I just got to fake this and hope that they go with it and then it'll be real at some point. So there's some instruments that the samples aren't, they're still, they're not that great. But I've been amazed in the last few years of how the technology has come on with samples. I remember, I think this year, there was an animated score on Netflix for Blood of Zeus by Paul Edward Francis, which you could swear was a huge Miklas Roscher-like orchestra. It was superb. It's crazy, yeah. And you know what? Hans started all of it. Hans was the kind of the first big guy to rely on sampling and, and uses it heavily. In, and he does record everything, but he mixes it in with samples. So, yeah, we've got Mr Zimmer to thank for that. Have you found on rare occasions that the film you're composing for is fully locked, i.e. completely finished and there'd be no additional scenes added to it? It is ready for composing and nothing else. I've had two experiences and one was we've already mentioned was Spooks. Um, that was as near as you get to locked because it's never really locked because they're still on the dub stage there's probably going to be a number of edits that you know happen because someone's giving notes or whatever and the second one was was money monster because it was a save job so i was coming on at the very end i had three and a half weeks to score it and so it was near as damn it it was finished I think there were a couple of tweaks at the end. We didn't have time to conform stuff. It was yeah. just, it was three weeks. It was like, go! Incredible experience. Absolutely love Jodie Foster and wish I'd had more time with her. But um, those two movies were the only ones. Everything else is just constantly changing. <laughs> 
it's a mad world being a film composer these days. I think it, it can be, yeah. I'm sure, sure it's a very frustrating experience for you, but it's still probably still a very rewarding experience in that respect. Massively rewarding, massively rewarding. But, you know, it is, you're definitely reminded at times that this is a job. So we, <laughs> I live in a world in which I get to kind of play around and write music all day. And it seems like, you know, and I am extremely lucky to be able to do that and have to pinch myself regularly. But there are moments where you go, oh, wait, no, this is a job. I am getting put through the ringer. Yeah. Um, but like I said earlier, when you're really struggling and you really have to find that extra gear to get you over the finish line, it's massively rewarding. And oftentimes works out to be even better than what you had before. So as long as you've done your job properly. Mm. I've had that a couple of times where actually you sit back after not hearing it for a couple of months and going, yeah, no, that is better, actually. That is better. for the days like in the 40s 50s and 60s when a composer went to a film it was fully completed and just told to just do your thing yeah just let loose on yeah yeah films. yeah and that trust is something that um you know we're constantly working with different directors and different producers and you know i definitely have that trust with someone like jimmy hayward I think i'm pretty much there with will now and it's you know 
so definitely on the second Peter Rabbit movie, the trust was amazing and there were very little change notes and there were change notes that did come were due to the pictures. It's one of those things that if the picture had been done, the trust in me to kind of do what I do is there. And it's really nice to have those relationships now with directors that just go, okay, just do, as you said, just do you, just be you. But inevitably with, as you said, studios and test screenings and all the kinds of things that go on now, things change and you just kind of, that's just part of the job. You have to kind of adapt and, and roll with the punches. I hear in a number of your scores, like, for example, Peter Rabbit 2, you have a gift of a melodic style. Mm, Yeah, melody is so important for me. I mean, it's always been the most important thing in any music for me. I'm one of those guys that knows very little lyrics to any songs. I'm just kind of singing the tune and sort of mumbling vague recollection of what the lyrics are. Um, melody is massive and I think it really helped me being in choirs as a boy being a boy treble being a boy soprano you're always on the tune and I think that really helped me being a singer being a solo instrumentalist it does help get to grasp with melody and things that work and in intricate interesting melodies John Powell again his melodies go on for days and they're wonderful and he doesn't shy away from them and but as you say sometimes you're doing a movie and if the melody gets too expressive you're sort of you're, you're handcuffed i believe it's your job as a film composer to find something memorable that's simple and that's how often the hardest thing to do is to what is that simple motif that is memorable and keeps coming back does the job of an expressive melody so yeah there's different different trials and tribulations along the way do you think that your music in your in the film should be both functional in context but also good music that stands on its own 100 percent, all of those things which is the line that we tow that we walk the tightrope of that it's it's how do you stay serving the film how do you stay memorable within the film and how do you stay memorable and great without the film and just the listening experience and that's something i'm always striving for I and mean, everyone i've worked with and for over the years has helped me in that quest oftentimes The best thing to do is to get out of the way. But that just means when you are in and you are present, that you need to be really working and making sure that you're helping the picture and not getting in the way, but still kind of doing what you do and helping the story arc, helping the emotions of what's not there. It's like I could talk about this all day because it's such a fascinating thing for me of how to kind of toe the line, but yet still show what you're capable of and for it to be playable on a soundtrack. You know, I often feel if I've done my job properly, I don't have to do much editing when it comes to putting the soundtrack out. It can just go, however many tracks it is, it can just be there. Oftentimes the scores, I'm being like, oh no, we should probably cut that. Oh, that bit's a bit boring. But that's part and parcel of some scoring where you just kind of, you just need to be out of the way. And sometimes producers just want very minimal help. And then you've got the whole concept of those wall-to-wall scores that, are so difficult to do, sometimes necessary, sometimes not. But when they are necessary, towing that line of when to be out the way and then when to use melody, not to use melody too much because it gets you get fatigued by it. It's a really hard thing to do, one that, that is the constant quest. And I'd say some of my scores, I haven't quite managed that. There's some great bits, but it's not all great. And some of them I have managed that. As I say, it's the constant goal to, to achieve those, the, the trifecta of serving the film, um, not getting in the way, but still, still being memorable 
both with and without the movie. I think it's a rare thing these days that a director has the confidence that for their music going to be front and centre, like, for example, John Williams is with Jaws. It's yeah. going, the music becomes an important layer of the film. Okay, you can have it as a lot of people think of it as wallpaper these days, but I like mm-hmm. it when the, when the music is there adding to the narrative of the film. That's one of the mm-hmm. like, Williams example of that is Raiders of a Lost Ark and films like that. Really, the music is front and centre as part of the film's narrative and an important texture to that film. And it's awesome. 100%. I can really hear when directors and filmmakers have been bold in their mixes in which to feature the music and use it as a narrative. An example of that that isn't orchestral is, I don't know if you've seen Ex Machina, amazing film. And it's the way he uses music in that, in the in the mix, in the dub, is so bold and so cool. And it's part of the reason why the movie comes across as being so kind of quirky and cool and different and a bit offsetting. And I really feel there are times where you can do that. And it doesn't always have to be a big orchestral thing. I mean, I'm I'm watching the the TV show White Lotus at the moment. I can't remember the name of the composer, but it, the music's fantastic. It's and it's super present and it's really unsettling and it's like gives you this kind of feeling of the islands against everybody. Amazing and it's a it's a very ballsy, I'll say, dub because it is so loud. I was a bit disappointed when I heard the Monsters at Work mix because you put so much effort into it and then it just sort of becomes wallpaper underneath everything. And then sometimes you hear it, sometimes you don't. And part of that is being in a pandemic and not being able to be at the dub and give my notes. But I really commend and applaud those filmmakers that are willing to really get the music up. We've gone through the process. We've like we've we've struggled to get to this point. Why are we burying it? You know, you've given me however many notes and we finally got to the point where everyone's happy. I'm proud of it. Let's just let people hear it and let it help the story progress. So, yeah, it's a good question.
do you write for yourself or is your only goal is to write for the, what the project demands of you? The second one, I mean, in writing music, I'm writing for myself. I'm getting to do what I love just by sitting down at the keyboard. That's always going to be for me in, in some regard. But I really, really try to give back what pictures, what the story arcs, what the characters are giving to me. And something that was instilled in me from my remote control days and learning with hands is that, yes, you're a composer. Yes, you're a musician, but you also need to be a filmmaker. And if you're not, you're not doing the best job you can in order to collaborate with the materials that are already there. I mean, I've heard a, f a few scores over the years that are, that definitely are a little bit look at me. And while they are fantastic, they don't necessarily blend as well as the approach of I'm going to do what the film needs. Um, and it's, it's tricky because, you know, you can sometimes you want to flex sometimes you want to be like oh this would be great if it was this but it just you know that's not what the filmmakers directors producers want so yes I do put myself in the box of I need to do what the what the project's giving me and and work as another filmmaker on this as well as the composer but you would like to put your sound up there if you can you're always your, trying your to do that voice your musical voice always trying to do that but it's I'm never trying to like show off and flex unless it's asked of me. <laughs> I'm always wanting to show off if I'm asked to. You do get your moment, though. I mean, if in a, in a well-constructed TV show or movie, there's always a moment for you to flex. And, you know, if you do your job properly, that you, you, you take your chance and you, you grab that moment. And often is the, the track on the soundtrack that's got the little star by it if you've done your job properly. This is what people are listening to. One is usually highlighted on the FSM review, usually, and they pay a little bit of right. the, the, stand, the standout cue. Yeah. <laughs> now, what are the things are you working on at the moment? And uh, what's is, uh, what are you working on in the future? If you can actually tell us at this moment. Um, well, I'm doing, some, I'm doing some Baymax shorts, a character from Big Hero 6. I'm doing some really, really sweet, amazing little shorts, I think. I don't know how many there are. But uh, and I don't know when they're coming out, but which is that's a kind of slow burn. I've, I've got them going. As we mentioned earlier, I did some additional music on the film. So I was asked to do these shorts, which is great. I co-wrote the, the King's Man with Matthew Margerton that's coming out in December, which is really cool. And actually falling off the back of our last question, Matthew Vaughan is a guy that really likes to feature the music when it needs to be featured. It was grueling for everyone, including Matthew Vaughan and, and me and Matt and, you know, going through the process of characters changing, cuts changing, the pandemic, also, you know, that whole thing that we've spoken about during the course of this interview and, and getting to the end of it and really kind of looking back and going, wow, this is, we're super proud of the score. We're so proud. It's extremely orchestral, although not floral, yet it, there's a definite sense of nostalgia in the orchestral writing. So we're both Matt and I are very, very proud of that. And then I can't say too much about the, the score or the film or anything, but I'm working on David Leach's new movie, uh, Bullet Train, starring Brad Pitt. So that's super exciting. And that's it, I think, currently. <laughs> that sounds excellent. I enjoyed both the two Kingsman scores. Were you involved in the additional music? I was, it was. It was. I was. I did the first one. I um. I wrote a few cues on the first one. But yeah, Matt and Henry were the listed composers. But um, it was good actually getting brought on to 
to do the king's man because as it should be but matthew vaughan was not aware that i had written some of his apparently favorite cues from the first one so that was a really nice icebreaker to kind of get involved with matthew so would you like one day to be asked to write James Bond music? Because I felt, Peter Rabbit said, was there some James Bond stuff in the music? Well, I can't that... help but not kind of be inspired <laughs> by John Barry and, and anything that's sort of got spy elements to it. I would, it, yeah, you've, I'm rumbled. I would absolutely adore to do a James Bond film at some point in my career. I adore the genre. I adore the character. All of the films, all of the scores, so yeah, no, you rumbled me. I would definitely love to to be a part of a James Bond movie. Yeah. Yes, I was listening to the fact this guy's doing a James Bond audition. It sounded <laughs> that it was that exciting sort of feel in the music. I thought, hang on, hang on a minute, he's sticking this in about nobody noticing. I rumbled, yeah. No, well, luckily, I mean, it's it's very much in the style of that um, of John Barry, but um, there's no there's no actual themes or or anything that that's the same it's just it's the peter rabbit themes in the style of those kind of 60s spy movies so away from hands and that which composers do you actually admire aside from people career? i've worked with you mean stuff and people you worked with yes obviously admire john williams hugely admire alan silvestri i'd say that back to the future is probably my favorite score well actually no back to the future is my favorite theme i'd say that et is probably my favorite score overall but aside from film composers, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a heavy, heavy diet of Strauss and Ravel and Wagner and many, many classical composers um, that I hugely admire. And it's something that I've stolen from John. But when you're writing orchestral music, you try and get somewhere close to these incredible heroes in classical music. And by massively failing, you somehow create your own sound. When I started working on How to Train Your Dragon, and I was like, well, what do you want it to sound like? Obviously you, but you know, any references? And he'd be like, well, yeah, just try and sound like Ravel and Strauss and in failing, you'll, you'll sound like me. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, John Williams, Alan Silvestri, I got to meet Alan at my first BMI awards and he was so sweet and so lovely. And it's actually like, I don't normally get starstruck. I've met like a few celebrities as well, but. Alan was what I was like, I felt myself kind of gushing a little bit and being a bit sort of over the top because he's just had a massive influence on me. I'm sure I'd be exactly the same if I if I'd actually met John Williams. I sat like three chairs away from him, but then forgot to talk to him. So, yeah, those two guys are, are big for me. One final question. How do you see your career developing? in the years to come how do i see it or how do i want it to develop it's well, probably well, two well, very different things. well both well both how do you want it to well, develop and how do you think it's going to happen <laughs> i mean i'd love to reach the level of my mentors basically i'd love to be mentioned in the same breath as john and hans and maybe one day alan and, and john but probably not because i don't think anyone will get to that sort of level just the way the business is structured but yeah that's i mean that's always the goal i think it's important to adjust your goals back in college me talking to you now and and working on movies that was the goal and you know as you progress in your career and hopefully touch words you get more and more successful you you know the bar has to get raised in everything whether it's career goals or a standard or a level of music or a level of production you're constantly raising your bar to get to that next level so that's the goal for me in the next few years is just to keep progressing i've got what I think is going to be a, an amazing big movie with um with Bullet Train. Landing that was a huge 
goal ticker off, whatever the phrase is. And just to keep doing that, keep getting to that next level, whatever that next level is, whether it's working with a director I want to work with, working on a film that I really want to do. And for people to keep listening to my music and, you know, people like yourself liking stuff that I do, that's always the main goal. I want more and more people to to know who I am and to to enjoy listening to what I do. So I mean that's that that's the main goal, you know. And, and that's how you achieve being the most well known is for people to want to listen to your stuff and people to enjoy listening to your stuff. So that's the overall goal. Dominic Lewis, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on Talking Soundtracks. Thank you, Jason. Interview with Dominic Lewis on the latest edition of Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. And if you want to know the music played on the show, please look on the music playlist on the Cinematic Sound Radio website at cinematicsound.net. The Talking Soundtrack theme was composed by David Cassina. At the end of the interview, Dominic mentioned that The Kingsman was hopefully coming out before Christmas 2021. Well, thankfully it did. And so to play us out, here is one of the cues from The Kingsman, entitled Goliath, composed by Matthew Madison and my guest today, Dominic Lewis. Many thanks again for Dominic for joining us on this show and the two will meet again on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast from me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our T Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net.